Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the life and work of the great paleontologist, theologian, and mystic Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. With me is Peter Todd, who is a Jungian therapist practicing in Sydney, Australia. He is also the author of The Individuation of God. Welcome, Peter. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Indeed, a pleasure to be with you to be discussing one of my heroes, Pierre de Chandin. He is an amazing person from all accounts. Uh, Teilhard is known as a scientist, and but most importantly, as a mystic, and probably even more than that, someone who was able to unify his mystical and theological insights with. Uh, his work as an evolutionary scientist and paleontologist. Absolutely. I'd also add that I think probably, uh, having read his collective works and having published uh, an article on Tayar in Tayar Studies, the Journal of the American Tayar Association, I think I'd like to add that I think Tayar's was a prophetic voice for the future, not just one who integrated science and theology or evolution and theology at that time, but a lot of what he had to say about the noosphere and the evolutionary movement towards the divine focus of mind or omega point uh, sounds to me to have been quite prophetic given the time at which he was writing and the persecution to which he was subject. Now, I know that uh, Teilhard is well known for his description of the newosphere, uh, but I understand actually the idea was uh, already in the air, and even the word, the newosphere, had been developed by a Ukrainian scientist, I think uh, Verodnatsky, if, uh, if I'm correct. And, and uh, he talked about the development from the uh, geosphere to the biosphere to the newosphere, meaning the, the realm of thought and consciousness. Yes, Mintaya actually defined the noosphere as a global membrane of consciousness emerging with uh, Homo sapiens and being evolved through mass communication on the planet and leading to a future consummation of the human with uh, the numinous which he referred to as the omega point or divine focus of mind. He seemed to be suggesting that there was an end point to evolution, a, a time in which uh, the universe itself would reach maximum complexity and maximum consciousness. In, in fact, I think what he was getting at is a kind of unity of all sentient beings with the divine. Absolutely. I think that was part of his mystical division. And that wasn't any implication either when he wrote about the ending being, you know, a divine focus of mind or omega point that this somehow implied the annihilation of the earth. It was something he wrote about almost as a timeless and eternal reality in which we are participating. In our previous interview on uh, dual aspect monism, we talked about ideologies and how uh, 
The Catholic Church, as well as many other authoritarian institutions, use their ideologies uh, as a vehicle for persecuting people. And Teilhard, who remained a devout Catholic, a Jesuit throughout his entire life, was in fact silenced and one might say persecuted by the very church to which he was so devoted. Yes. Well, Teilhard was formally silenced and asked to recant his writings under, in terms of Jesuit uh, vow of uh, obedience uh, before Vatican II. So he was forbidden to teach theology. He was only allowed to teach geology, though he remained a Jesuit paleontologist until his death in, on Easter Sunday in 1955. But he was severely persecuted by the Catholic Church and even his own superiors reined him in and forbade him to teach anything on theological lines in his lifetime or to publish for that matter. Now, I am under the impression uh, that these days the Catholic Church is very receptive to his ideas. Yes. Well, you see, what a remarkable uh, turnabout that is. Pope Francis has actually acknowledged Tao de Chantin and the value of his contribution in recent statements. But in the reign of the three popes, three, three uh, papacies that Tao uh, experienced in his lifetime, he was continually silenced and the Jesuit order was asked or required by the Vatican to demand that he not publish anything of a theological nature, even this wonderful uh, process theology that he is, uh, mystical theology that he is credited with. Mm -hmm. I suppose his most famous book is The Phenomenon of Man. It is. That was published in uh, 1940. In that he wrote, in Omega, we have in the first place the principle we needed to explain both the persistent march of things towards greater consciousness. By its radial nucleus, it finds its shape and natural consistency in gravitating against the tide of probability towards a divine focus of mind which draws it onwards. I also understand that many materialist scientists took great umbrage at that kind of thinking, trying trying to merge theology with uh, the theory of evolution seemed like a, a cardinal sin to some scientists. Uh, to some, but certainly not to someone as eminent as the biologist Sir Julian Huxley, who wrote a glowing endorsement of the phenomenon of man, uh, actually stating that he really respected Tayar's capacity to integrate scientific ideas with spirituality. Uh, I have heard, though, that Julian Huxley, while it, it, confessing his admiration for Tayhard, also acknowledged that he didn't subscribe to every idea. Well, of course, Julian Huxley remained uh, a biologist uh, without he didn't embrace any theological ideas, but he admired, admired Tayhard's work. And his, I think the way Huxley understood Tao was that of a need to, have, to incorporate a spiritual dimension of becoming to humanity without actually subscribing to anything supernatural, which of course would have been anathema, not only to Sir Julian Huxley, but to most other scientists of the day. It's that distinction between the supernatural aspects of uh, theology and uh, a theology which is much more mystical and 
involving the imminence of God and humanity and humankind participating in the process of co-creative divinization that I have referred to. Are you suggesting that there's a, a you're making a distinction between the mystical and the supernatural? What I'm really saying there is, there's not necessarily a distinction, but I think Julian Huxley respected a spiritual dimension in Taoist work without subscribing to the more supernatural theological notions that were uh, promulgated in, in his lifetime. How about Teilhard himself? Did uh, How did he view what is sometimes called the supernatural, or, or was that not even part of his vocabulary? It wasn't part of his vocabulary, but he wrote about transcendence, and a wonderful passage that was used at the royal wedding, uh, quoted by an Episcopal bishop, which I shall actually read to you. It's called The Energies of Love. And what Tower wrote was, the day will come when, after harnessing the winds, the tides, gravitation, we shall harness for God the energies of love. And on that day, for the second time in the history of the world, we will have discovered fire. What a beautiful quote. I believe that was from the uh, wedding ceremony of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. I'm not, not, I'm not sure how the you know more evangelical Anglicans in the uh, church would have responded to that, but here we had an Episcopal bishop quoting directly that passage from uh, Théâtre de Chardin, which I was thrilled with. And, you know, I'm under the impression that the uh, Episcopalians, particularly in the United States, pay more um, attention to Teilhard than the Catholics do. I think that is probably still true. I understand they have a feast day. Yes, there is, in fact, a feast day of Teilhard de Chardin, and the American Tower Association is involved in that as well. And one of the key personalities who belongs to that and who's publishing brilliant work on uh, incarnational theology is a nun called Iria Delio, with whom I've corresponded, who referred to my work as seminal with respect to understanding the incarnation, continuing incarnation, on a deeper level. Well, let's talk about that, because uh, it does seem to be the notion of incarnation itself, that very notion, does seem central to Teilhard's thinking. Well, indeed it is. But Taya took it a bit further, you see, to Christians and particularly to Roman Catholics in the 1950s, the Incarnation was a singular historical event where God became human in order that human beings might participate in God. But they didn't have any notion of a continuing Incarnation. They held on to this notion of the incarnation of God in Christ as the one singular incarnational event without moving on to seeing that the incarnation continues in and through us. There is a sense, I think, in which Teilhard is referring to Christ not just as a, a planetary deity or a Western civilization deity, but uh, something of a cosmological figure. Uh, he does refer to Christ as a cosmological figure, and that brings him very close to the thinking and writing of Carl Jung on Christ as a symbol of the numinous self archetype, which he couldn't distinguish from uh, the Imago Dei, an unconscious God image empirically. There's a lot of convergence between the thought and writing of Jung and that of Teilhard de Chardin, in other words.
I've also had the uh, privilege of interviewing another uh, theologian, Matthew Fox, who, uh, like Teilhard, was was a Catholic theologian, uh, silenced by the Catholic Church. And actually, in the case of Matthew Fox, he became uh, an Episcopalian. Uh, and, and he wrote a book called The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, which I, I gather is in the same spirit as Teilhard's writing. Teilhard actually wrote of the cosmic Christ in, his, in a number of his works, including The Future of Man. So, yes, that's very much a Teilhard concept, the notion of the cosmic Christ, rather than just this singular, singular historical figure that allegedly was crucified 2,000 years ago. If one talks about a, a notion of actual God, a deity uh, that would be describable in the same way in the most distant galaxies as as here on Earth, that would be, uh, one might say, at least compatible with this notion of the cosmic Christ. It's compatible with the notion of the cosmic Christ and with the notion that we've discussed already of uh, you know, an immanent principle being implicit both in cosmology and also in evolution. The Deus Implicitus, as it were, in both of those and emerging uh, to con- reveal to consciousness in and through humanity that it is a species on this earth anyway that is endowed with reflective consciousness, the mirror in which the existence of the universe is revealed to itself and in which it is revealed. That's beautifully put, Peter. I know in our previous discussion on dual aspect monism, I was struggling with this idea of Deus implicitus. That is, what is the role of the deity in dual aspect monism? And uh, since Teilhard was also a dual aspect monist uh, who accepted the uh, Deus implicitus, uh, how did he view it exactly? Can you elaborate on that a little more? Well, Teilhard wrote... A lot in his collective works, particularly the phenomenon of man and the future of man, or in the heart of matter, about the the within of things, as he put it, the interior aspect of the world and of the cosmos. And this interior aspect involved both mind and a numinous dimension, or uh, if you like, a God dimension, an actual God dimension to it. In other words, from a Jungian perspective, as as we go deep within, uh, in dreams, for example, or uh, other internal states of awareness, uh, and we connect with uh, a Godhead archetype, the your suggestion is that there's a consciousness of the universe that also uh, deals in archetypes. Well, I think that there are archetypes even prior to the advent of consciousness, a late-born offspring of the unconscious soul, as Pauli put it, on our planet with the emergence of Homo sapiens. I don't think, don't think there's much evidence of reflective consciousness of this type before Homo sapiens, but certainly with us it is quite clearly established and it's continuing to evolve. So our reflective consciousness makes it possible for you and I to have a conversation about such a thing as a Godhead archetype. But if we didn't have that ability to reflect on these things, the archetype might be acting upon us or manifesting through us in any case. Yes, or acting very destructively and without much uh, reflection or insight in maniacs like Hitler, who had a messiah complex, was totally possessed 
by something quite demonic uh, and uh, yet had no insight into himself and was, had a very destructive impact on the world, you know, responsible for 60 million deaths in World War II. This is a problem that I think the Jungians sometimes refer to as inflation. Yes. Well, as we both know, Hitler was a megalomaniac who finally committed suicide by shooting himself in the mouth. That's a very phallic act, isn't it? He sent homosexuals to the uh, concentration camps as well as Jews. Indeed he did. And it strikes me uh, that Hitler is a a representative of humanity. He is an example of uh, one type of human nature, something that uh, could happen again. Uh, Yes, incarnating a rather diabolical, destructive, negative, almost numinously negative archetype. I'm struggling with this, Peter, but let me try and uh, put it bluntly. Uh, uh, since it's come up, since we've used this horrible example of of Hitler, uh, do you subscribe to uh, a, a notion of absolute evil, a, a, a diabolic entity in the world? I think that's an aspect of the collective human shadow about which you wrote a great deal. And in fact, he actually wrote quite clearly about uh, the Hitler phenomenon as one manifestation of a principle of absolute evil emerging and being acted out upon by uh, a madman, a megalomaniac with a messiah complex. Because I have from time to time heard other Jungians describe this kind of a situation as, as being one in which the archetype can take over the human. Yes, I mean... The old-fashioned theological term for that, of course, would be possession, possessed by the archetype, this dark, shadow, destructive archetype. And Hitler, of course, was a numinous figure for his people. They didn't see uh, this destructive entity for what it was. That's very unfortunate, but of course, subsequent to Hitler, we have had various cults of personality at the political level uh, with authoritarian figures often typically, in fact, leading to misery and destruction. Yes. Well, without wanting to get too much away from Tayar, I mean, in my book I write about uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, Chairman Mao, and uh, a number of other people who are responsible for uh, mass murder and the deaths of millions of people, as well as the uh, persecution of dissenters. Now, Teilhard uh, also served uh, in the military, as I understand. I think he received some medals during the uh, First World War. So, yes, Teilhard was greatly moved by World War I and the technology involved. And he saw in that what he wanted to do, what he actually wrote was, on the battlefields of uh, De Verdun, I'd like to erect a statue of the cosmic Christ, torn between the opposites of good and evil and yet a source of light and hope for the world. So even in the midst of warfare, he uh, was open to uh, divine inspiration. Yes. I think it led him to a deeper form of mysticism and out of the tendency to deny the shadow that so many human beings are prone to. I mean, as you know, the process of individuation is a journey in Jungian psychotherapy or analysis through an encounter with the shadow and the anima animus and ultimately with the numinous self-archetypal God image. But again, 
you see within the collective unconscious. These are not properties that can be arrogated to our consciousness, or if so, only a great peril of inflation. How does the uh, Jungian community uh, respond to the work of Teilhard? Do they see him as a fellow traveler, or is it more the case that uh, uh, Teilhard's work is considered uh, completely separate from that of Jung? Some of the foremost Jungian writers, people like Roderick Maynard of Essex, whom I've mentioned previously, actually refer to Teilhard's thought as being very convergent with that of Carl Jung, and if not directly influencing him, at least there was this remarkable uh, synchronous convergence of the thought of Tao and Jung, particularly with respect to uh, mystical union or the conjunctio oppositorum, the union of opposites in the world. Now, I, I should mention that uh, Tao was not only silenced prior to Vatican II uh, and kept in a state of silence until his death, but interestingly, the last entry in his diary on Maundy Thursday in 1955 was in Greek on Parsi Pantotheos, that God may be all in all. And to me, that is the most succinct statement of his panentheistic leanings. So even though as a Jesuit paleontologist, he probably wouldn't have adopted or embraced uh, evolutionary panentheism. In effect, I think his theology is a prime example of that. I understand that uh, many people uh, consider him a vitalist, uh, like Andre Bergson, that uh, uh, accepting that some sort of uh, vital force in teleki is uh, driving evolution forward. Julian Huxley, as well, was onto the telos, the sense of purpose and direction in Tayar's work, but I'm not sure that he embraced intellectualism or vitalism. I think he was a little more sophisticated than that and saw a mental and numinous dimension implicit in cosmology and evolution and emerging in and through us. So we no longer talk talk of intellect as or vital forces. I mean, these are just reified concepts that don't explain anything. But the notion of numinous becoming and the, uh, the archetype of the divine is a different matter. We can observe and experience that even though we can't in our finiteness completely understand it. Perhaps a better way of phrasing it might be that his notion of Christ as a cosmological figure uh, served really as, as more of an attractor than uh, than a vital entelechy. Yes, I think Tar really regarded our participation in evolution as a movement drawn towards the omega point or divine focus of mind by the energies of love or the attraction you see, of the numinous in the future. Here's something that puzzles me, Peter. Uh, he was a paleontologist. He uh, continued his work, I believe, as a paleontologist, even after uh, he was initially silenced by, and forced to recant some of his ideas by the Jesuits. So, uh, basically, they were saying that uh, at that period in history that evolutionary theory was an anathema, uh, but the science of paleontology, which supports evolutionary theory, that would have been okay with them at the time. Yes, and with that, on condition that he teach only geology and paleontology and had, had nothing to say uh, theologically. I mean, he wrote about that in his books, which were published posthumously, of course, by a group of friends in America. 
however, he was not allowed to teach uh, anything theological in his lifetime, only geology, which they felt was a bit safer. But they never in- attempted to suppress his scientific research. No, they, they allowed that to go on. And in fact, he won the uh, Gregor Mendel Gregor Mendel Medal in 1937 for the outstanding nature of his scientific work, which, as you know, included uh, participating in the discovery of Peking Man, one of the major steps in human evolution. A very important uh, step in in human evolution, uh, in which he was directly involved. I think Tao saw his work, you see, as not antithetical to his mysticism or his theology, but almost as supporting it, being in a relationship with complementarity, as we might say. How would you say his work is regarded today? I know there's a Teilhard Society we've spoken about. We've spoken about the feast day uh, in his honor uh, held by the uh, American Episcopalian Church. Uh, but overall, uh, do you do you find that uh, his influence is, for example, in the Jungian community? Is he much spoken of? He's spoken of by some, including people like Roderick Mayne, but Michael Fordham, who wrote a book called Explorations into the Self in 1986. So there are allusions to him, if not directly, then at least by implication in the published work of a number of notable Jungians. I mean, Jung, Jung's work, as you know, was based upon uh, a combination of dual aspect monism, emergence, and uh, this notion of uh, mysticism, numinous becoming. So uh, certainly to your think- way of thinking, there, there's a real compatible uh, quality to Jung and Teilhard. Absolutely. I think it's worth letting the uh, our viewers know that in a very indirect way, uh, Teilhard has influenced me uh, because I studied in uh, my early years back in the mid-1970s. I had some uh, intensive interactions with Gene Houston, who grew up in New York City at a time when Teilhard had been confined to a monastery. She used to take walks in Central Park uh, and would run into an old gentleman who she spent as a 12-year-old girl a lot of time with. He, uh, he, she thought his name was Mr. Thayer, but uh, he, he would walk with her in the park day after day and help awaken uh, something very unique in her, which I think she has now passed on to thousands and thousands of individuals. Uh, I feel fortunate in a small way to have been touched by that myself. Well, Tao tends to have that impact upon people, even upon an impressionable 12-year-old girl who went on to become, as you say, a great spiritual teacher. I think he's had a much, he's had a, an influence, though, now, even upon the Catholic Church. I would see him as, I think, as that bishop who delivered that Energies of Love address at the Royal Wedding Sermon, as... One of those figures who, like Ignatius of Loyola back at the time of the Reformation, tried to transform the church from within, because in need of extreme transformation, it certainly is if it's to continue to exist at all and not evolve into something else. Uh, I think the latter might be preferable, actually, to get rid of the institution and to you know, have this global understanding of evolutionary panentheism uh, as a spirituality that would be acceptable to people 
without becoming dogmatic, a dogmatic form of theology. Uh, how about in your own life personally, Peter? I'm under the impression that actually, uh, in terms of your own growth, uh, not only as a scholar, but uh, as a psychotherapist and your own personal uh, emotional individuation, that Teilhard was a, a very important figure in your life. Well, I became very disillusioned in the radical behaviorism of my undergraduate years and as I may have mentioned in a previous interview, began reading the works both of Carl Jung and of Teilhard de Chardin in my mid-twenties, and I read them thoroughly. I read the collected works of Jung and also everything that Teilhard had published, and that gave me an inner sense of enhanced spirituality, rather mystical, certainly not orthodox, and that's essentially the way I regard myself today a heretic to the radical behaviorists who told me that I dare not publish or produce an essay on Jung or I'd get a fail mark, and a heretic also from the perspective of the Orthodox Roman Catholic Church. I recall our discussion, Peter, uh, when we talked about your near-death experience and how uh, your familiarity with Teilhard and Jung uh, really helped you to integrate that experience because uh, I know uh, many uh, individuals who die and come back uh, have a very, very hard time returning to their normal life again. Yes. I'd like to make two comments on that. One is that the millions of NDEs that have been recorded and uh, researched under very controlled circumstances to determine the circumstances in which they occur have in common, you see, this encounter with, with what I'd call uh, the numinous God archetype in the form of the light and this cosmic presence and source of wisdom far beyond what we are capable of. And I would also add to that that when I read the accounts of the mystics, particularly people like Hildegard of Bingen or John of the Cross, their accounts of the mystical union with the divine are uncannily similar to the content of the phenomenology of the near-death experiences. And frankly, I can't see that as being accidental. I think there is an archetypal process at work in both cases, even though that word would never have been used by the mystics of the past. I think the encounter is with the same numinous reality. I wonder, did Tehard uh, write about uh, any of these experiences in his own biography? best way to sum it up would be that he's all the time, whilst actively working as a Jesuit paleontologist and remaining faithful to his vows, engaging in scientific work which perhaps he even intuitively sensed will be of much more influence after his death in the future than they would be in his lifetime. And poor old Tower died on Easter Sunday of uh, 1955 and was buried the next day rather quietly by a few Jesuits in obscurity. But the remarkable thing is, it's like a resurrection. I mean, Tower's obscurity has now become a worldwide interest in his work and in his mysticism by all sorts of people. And I understand that just a few days prior to his death, he expressed the desire to die on Easter Sunday. Yes. And that was the day, Maundy Thursday, in which he wrote that panentheistic comment that I quoted to you earlier. I see. Perhaps he had a sense that uh, his ideas would, in fact, be resurrected. 
uh, I think intuitively you're quite right. Chose a great day on which to die, the feast of the resurrection. Peter Todd, once again, this has been a delightful conversation about a very inspiring figure. I certainly would encourage all of our viewers to uh, take a look at the phenomenon of man and the future of man as, as well. Teilhard's writings strike me as uh, very vital and relevant today. I think the time will come when, for its own purposes, Tower will probably be canonized. In fact, I know that there are Episcopalians in America who are pushing for his canonization, not literally, you know, declaring that he's in heaven, but because of what that symbolizes about his greatness as a spiritual teacher. I think they're very relevant to a world that needs resacralizing, but not in terms of old traditional dogmatic theologies, which are just as uh, irre much irrelevant hypotheses as is, are the uh, principles of uh, metaphysical materialism. Peter, thank you so much for being with me. It's my pleasure, Jeff. And thank you very much. I uh, really feel privileged to be appearing on your, your uh, program. It's an honor and a privilege. Thank you.